Well, we're in the series Transformational. Uh, last week, we focused on collective transformation in a sense. How, how the children of Israel worshipped, obeyed, and worked, and how it led to improbable and near instantaneous change. Uh, it's interesting, we often see our faith as uh, an individual faith, uh, and yet the Bible often talks about faith as communal about actions that we take together, that God meets in that togetherness uh, and makes glorious, uh, and that makes the walls of Jericho fall down, if you please. Uh, and we see transformation like we saw uh, last week with Wow Jericho. Now this morning, uh, we consider individual transformation. Uh, and so we're going to turn to, to scripture uh, we're going to read from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 35. So Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 35. Uh, and as has become our custom, uh, we'll stand in uh, acknowledgement of God's holy word, uh, if you're able. So we'll read together Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 35. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. God, meet us right where we are, Lord, and empower us this morning to be transformed, to live into the fullness of what you have called us to. Help us, Lord. We ask in your name. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. Mm -hmm. Amen. I'm excited. 
uh, that this sermon this, this morning, I've actually preached this sermon or uh, a version of this sermon, I could say, uh, at least once uh, before. Uh, and I believe that God has uh, called me to preach it here uh, this morning as part of the transformational series. Uh, if I had to title the sermon this morning, I would title it Pondering Neighbor on the Jericho Transformational Road. Pondering Neighbor on the Jericho Transformational Road. Hopefully the sermon won't be as long as the title. Amen? Amen. The section of scripture that we just read uh, is famously known as the Good Samaritan. Uh, but this morning we're going to call it Jericho Road. Uh, and this morning we'll explore happenings on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So here's what we're going to do, if you'll uh, bear with me. We're going to ponder or we're going to uh, imagine from different angles, from different vantage points and perspectives, this Jericho Road to see what these happenings might be telling us today. Uh, we're exploring, we're pondering, and I invite you to do that with us and to invite God's help on this pondering journey. First, uh, some background. Jesus was responding to a question from a lawyer about who his neighbor is. Now, by lawyer here, we mean teacher of the law of Moses, someone who would be identified with the scribes and the Pharisees. This was uh, a man who knew scriptures well, someone uh, from the ruling class, if you please. He's not a priest or a Levite, but he probably identifies with them. Uh, they probably live in his neighborhood. And in fact, if the lawyer had to look and identify his neighbors in a police lineup, he'd pick Levite first and, and priest second. So the priest and the Levite were neighbors to our lawyer. And the priest and the Levite were the ones explicitly leading the Jewish community. Uh, and so some might expect the priest and Levite would be the first to help the man on the side of the road. And so you might wonder, why are the leaders failing? But, but the point here isn't necessarily to blame the priest and the Levite. If you look at this story before, you're often tempted to do this. But there are actually lots of potential reasons the priest and the Levite couldn't stop. In, in fact, if they were heading for worship, the Levite and priest may be concerned with breaking impurity laws from contact with blood. Either way, the point is that the one who helped was the one who was actually a neighbor to the hurt man. So your neighbor is the one in need. Your neighbor is the one in need. As we take another view of the situation, uh, we're not the first ones, obviously, to ponder this road. In fact, very famously, on uh, the night before he died, the great leader and Nobel Peace Laureate Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, shared some insight on this road to a gathering in Memphis among sanitation workers who were striking. Uh, and on that night that, that now lives in history, he said the following. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. Uh, I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem, we rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as a setting for his parable. 
It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 feet above sea level, and by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, in a car, you're about 22,000 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Pass. And you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. And so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Dr. King has it right. It's important to realize that the Samaritan flipped the question around. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Oh, taking another view, pondering from a different angle. The third thing we came to ponder this morning uh, is that maybe your neighbor is actually the one you think is not your neighbor at all. The one that you were taught to hate. And to really consider the story of the Jericho Road, you have to understand that it was a Samaritan that did the stopping. Gave up his animal to walk many miles in thin sandals. Put up another brother at the end. Took two days of salary. Two days of salary and said, this is just the beginning. Spare no expense. I'm good for the rest of it. It was a Samaritan who did all that. So who is a Samaritan? To understand really quickly who a Samaritan is, let's go back to the beginning of the history of the children of Israel. To, to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. Israel had 12 sons who became the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, those tribes were given uh, different areas within the promised land. We read about the start of that journey last week uh, at Jericho. We're reading about the ascent to Jerusalem right now. Uh, and, and so the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, Saul, was from the smallest tribe, Benjamin. Uh, and then the great king David and his son Solomon were from the tribe of Judah. Judah and Benjamin were in the southern part of the kingdom, with the other ten in the northern part of the kingdom. And even at the height of the kingdom under David and under Solomon, there was infighting uh, between these groups. David and Solomon survived some rebellions in the day. You can read the story of Absalom. You can read other stories about how they survived rebellions. And when Solomon eventually uh, died, his son Rehoboam was approached by the people who asked for their work to be lessened. Rehoboam got some bad advice and told the people, hey, Solomon may have put you to work, but I'm going to put you to work a whole lot more. And so what happened in that moment is that the ten northern tribes said, forget you, we're splitting apart. And so at that point in the history of Israel, there are two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is known as Ephraim, or Samaria, and the southern kingdom, which we know as, as Judah or as Israel. They were two separate kingdoms. They literally came from the same father, from Israel, uh, but they split at 
this moment. And when the Northern Kingdom was trying to understand their religion and faith, they no longer had access to the, the, the temple at Jerusalem. And this is my interpretation, by the way. Uh, and so they said, hey, we are going to say that you don't go to Jerusalem to worship. Instead, you are going to go to these two particular mountains, and that's where you are going to worship. You may remember in John 4, the woman at the well, when she got to the point where she was asking Jesus, do you understand my religion? Asked, hey, uh, where are we supposed to worship? Because that was the indeed the question that separated these two groups. And so the Samaritans and, uh, and the children of Israel, as we know it, and the Jewish people, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin were, uh, were opposed. They were, they were brothers and sisters moving back. And you all know that sometimes brothers and sisters are the ones that fight it out the most. To be clear, they're in the same group, they're in the same neighborhood, in a sense, in the same area of the world. They have the same enemies at the time, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Persians. But they just don't like one another. Judah believed that Samaria worships wrong. And so you can see throughout the Gospels how this story comes out, right? If you think about the Gospels now in this concept, you can think about when, when, when Jesus is talking to Samarians, even when Jesus walks through Samaria and the disciples look side-eyes. If you, if you dig into the text, you can see it says that. Uh, because of this historical break, I'm spending a lot of time here, but all I am trying to tell you this morning is that Samaritan... And in this case, the, the person on the road are enemies. They've been taught to hate each other from when they were born. And their parents were taught that. And their parents' parents. And their parents' parents. Likely all the way back to Rehoboam with a couple of exceptions in Kings. Now that's the history. They just don't like each other. Now, some of us know about that. I know many of you have perfect families, but some of you have that cousin, that, that auntie, that, that uncle, the one uh, that's the family. Okay, maybe the family by marriage place removed. You, you know the one you're always hoping won't be there for Thanksgiving? The one who doesn't quite fit in? Or the one who's always in trouble? That person who walks in and can silence a room by saying hello? The Samaritans were that family member, the, the, the practically disowned family member. And, and, and as I like to joke, don't take my word for it. Look at the text. Jesus asked, which one was a neighbor to the man? The lawyer testing Jesus had three answers. The priest, the lawyer, or the Samaritan. He answers, the one who showed mercy. He can't even get the word Samaritan out. There is some animosity here, and maybe that's the point. The neighbor ended up being the enemy of the one he helped. Talk about outreach. Him who was hated, despised, couldn't walk right, couldn't talk right, couldn't worship right, not worthy to eat at the same table, malign, cast away, thought worthless. That's the one who acted like a neighbor. That's where the help came from. Uh, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho with this 
good come lately Samaritan? Is this a, a healing road? Is it a healing road for the soul? Is this a road for reconciliation or bringing enemies back together for the greater good? The good Samaritan treated an enemy like a friend. Uh, this man that was on the road broken may have once spit on Samaritans, may have talked bad about them in private spaces. Yet in the hour of need, the Samaritan treated him like a superstar. And I believe maybe Jesus is teaching the lawyer about how to obtain eternal life. And it looks like your enemy might be your neighbor. What can you do but love the one that saved you. In this case, what can you do but love that enemy? Which really sounds like God saying he wants to reconcile you with the one that you have been taught to despise. You could have asked, why aren't they on the road? Why are they dressed like that? Why were they in that neighborhood? But I want to tell you that the answers to those questions in a real sense don't matter. It doesn't change that the victim needed help. It doesn't change that the victim needed a neighbor and that neighbor was a Samaritan. It doesn't change that we're called to love God and love our neighbor. As we take another view and ponder from a different direction, I think maybe uh, we're starting to see that this isn't an arbitrary story Jesus told to answer this question. It's very specific. And to understand why the victims on the road, we need to consider that this man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho, that place where in a real sense the, the transformation happened and the start of the journey from from promise to reality actually started and it went from Jericho to Jerusalem, the place that was the apex of the promise, the place that was near the very top of the, the, the hill. And it's a windy and dangerous road uh, from the start of your promise to its culmination, uh, but it is a road that God allows us to travel. And so the fourth thing we want to ponder this morning is why is the Samaritan on the road? Because that road from Jericho to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Jericho is not in Samaria. The priest, the Levite, the, the, the Jewish victim, we can ask why they choose to be on the road, but at least they're in the area. But the Samaritan was way out of his comfort zone. He is an outsider here, not in the Samaritan's land. The land is somewhere else with, with, with different customs and a shared but at a point divergent history. There are likely not many other Samaritans around. This one was likely a traveler, maybe a trader, maybe an importer, exporter. The truth very much is that in one sense, I don't know exactly why the Samaritan is on this road. I don't know why he's in the middle of what seems to be hostile land, but there are two things 
That I do know. Firstly, the Samaritan may not realize it, may not claim it, may even have been taught otherwise, socialized to believe otherwise, but the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is in fact Samaritan country. <laughs> Samaritans and Judeans made the journey from the start to the fulfillment of the promise together. The breakup came after the road was traveled. Even if the Samaritan doesn't see it, even if the Samaritan doesn't understand it, even if we don't see it or understand it, the Samaritan belongs on that road, belongs in the history of God's promise, even if everything and everyone tells him differently. And indeed, if everyone and everything tells you differently, Samaritan, you belong in the annals of the history of the promises of God. Misfit, miscreate, false worshiper, no, 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 child of God. Part of the history of God and part of what God has in store. Even if you've been told otherwise your entire life, even if the assumptions that are unspoken tell you that same message, they are wrong. Samaritan, you are a child of God, and your past and your present doesn't change the fact that you belong on the road. Young person, there is nothing you can do that can stop you from belonging on the road to the promise of God's presence. You just have to accept that Jesus Christ died for you so you could be on the road. The second thing in this pondering I know is that regardless of anything else, the Samaritan is on the road because God put him on the road. God put him on the road. Whether he knew it or not, the Samaritan was on his way to the promises of God's riches when he met that young Jewish man. Because when the Samaritan met him, he forgot everything and all the ways he could have justified himself in saying no. The evil and unfairness he'd experienced at the hands of many throughout his life. And instead, he decided to love his neighbor as himself. And check out the transformation. Samaritan, the one who in the very gospel was called the dogs, swine, even worse. Today, we can't even think of the word Samaritan without thinking of the word good. Because he responded to a call from God to love his neighbor on the Jericho Road. And however you want to look at it, God placed the Samaritan on the road. God put the Samaritan on the road so that the Samaritan could reconcile with his brother, show the love of God, and to discover or rediscover in that action that he does belong on the road, that he is a child of God. Well, we've pondered this road a lot, but we're missing perhaps one more part. See, because you can't really ponder the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
can't ponder the act of the Good Samaritan, can't really see what's going on until you consider who got jacked up on that dangerous road. Sometimes we forget about the man who fell at the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I don't know if this is a parable or a true story that Jesus is recounting, but we can certainly imagine it being true. But what I can tell you with certainty is the actual name of the person who was accosted on the road. His name is Jesus. Jesus. Come on now, preacher, you say. We just read the text and nowhere does it say that Jesus was on the road. Okay, and I admit it, I admit it. It's hard to think about Jesus being on the road. And when I first realized this many, many years ago now, it sent shivers down my spine. You see, Matthew 25, we won't read it now, but tells of someone hungry, thirsty, naked, and being fed and clothed. Of someone being hungry and thirsty and those, those needs being taken care of or not. And I'm paraphrasing now, but Jesus says, when you help the hungry, the thirsty, the, the naked, you're doing it to Jesus. And so when the Samaritan's helping the one lying on the road, it's Jesus he's helping. I call that the great ministry. Jesus is the victim on the side of the road. Every time there's someone in need and you're helping them, it's Jesus you're helping. The Bible tells us so. But I want to use a sanctified imagination for a moment. I recognize I might be stretching our imagination, but that's, that's okay. I want you to imagine this possibility. Because Jesus tells a very specific story here. And the Bible doesn't record the details of the life of Jesus from age 12 to about age 29. Brother Rich, what if Jesus is telling the lawyer a history of actual events? Of a time Jesus was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and got fell upon by robbers. And that a Samaritan actually showed him mercy. What if Jesus decided to physically go on a dangerous road to help you overcome your past? To give you hope that there is promise in God. He did it on the cross. Why not on the road? We know Jesus suffered on the cross so we could have eternal life. And I want you to imagine for a moment that he also suffered on a windy, dirty, steep, and dangerous path so that someone could know that Jesus is in the promise-fulfilling business. Even if my imagination, even if our imagination is wrong, either way we know the Samaritan was a neighbor to Jesus that day. He loved God and loved neighbor. And by definition, when we do that, we are doing unto the least of these. At the end of the story, at the end of the story, Jesus says, 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And the entire conversation is transformed. Remember, this conversation started, the Bible told us explicitly, because this lawyer was trying to justify himself. Teacher, what, what specific action must I do to obtain eternal life? Okay, teacher, uh, you had me say what it says in the law, but I'm going to take that and I'm going to justify myself. That was the lawyer's orientation to his journey and faith in God. At the end, Jesus asks him, in essence, who acted as a neighbor? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed mercy. The very nature of the lawyer's view of his faith changed in that moment, I propose to you. Neighbor is no longer the object of my love, says Jesus here. But instead, neighbor is about the one who shares that love. The one who shows mercy. And that's what we're to do. Transformational. What does it mean when our faith is transformed from trying to justify ourselves and our walk to be a faith that is about showing mercy how does it transform our faith right now sister tiffany if we can get to the point where our faith is about showing mercy not about our justification of the law, but about allowing God to take every ounce that he has placed inside of us, our internal desire to show mercy, and to not allow that to be downpressed by our faith, but allow it to be the foundation of our faith and how we walk and how we talk and how we move in this world. What if we were transformed by the words of the prophet that says I desire mercy and not sacrifice? What if we took away the barriers that we try and allow us to hide? from the God-given desire inside of us to love and the fear of living completely into that? And what if we take both of those things and hand them over to Jesus? What if we for a moment decided to live into fullness? What if we decided as we were on the road
uh, the start of our promise to our fulfillment to say that we will live entirely into what God is calling us to, that we can take all of the hurt and we can lament and give it over to God, that we can take all of the joy and that we can give it over to God and we can turn what God has placed in us and give it over to God. What if we loved our God and our neighbor not out of justification, but out of our God-given desire to show mercy, transformation? How would we be transformed and help others see and experience God's love on treacherous roads if we allow God to permeate and dismantle and destroy the barriers sometimes even within our own understanding of our faith tradition that separate us from showing mercy to the Jesus lying on Jericho's road. God is awesome, and he is calling us and calling you to ponder however he is choosing to have you ponder right now and be transformed from wow Jericho to the fulfillment of our promise. In the church, I believe that we on the road from our Jericho to our Jerusalem. And the part of our work in this season, I, I won't even say you, I'm going to personalize it because I know I'm preaching to myself right now. Part of my work in this season is to trust God enough in the midst of it all to live into the desire for mercy that he has placed inside of me. And I know I need help to do it. <laughs> but I'm so glad that Jesus put me here at this time and this season to walk alongside all of you on Sunday mornings and in victory groups to be challenged and compelled not to walk with the barriers that the world tells us to set up, but instead to walk in the fullness that God has called me to, the fullness that he's shown by this good Samaritan on Jericho Road. God is so awesome, and he's greatly to be praised. Let us pray. God, transform us from the individual to our community. Transform us wherever we need to be transformed for your goodness and your glory. Work on us in a mighty way, Lord. We ask in your name. Amen. Now, I would be remiss just before 
Tyler and Crystal come up to continue to allow us to fully worship our God. I would be remiss if I didn't offer the opportunity explicitly for anyone who has not accepted uh, the grace of Jesus Christ, that he loved us so much that despite anything that we've done, he said, I am more than enough to overcome it. If there's somebody who hasn't experienced and hasn't accepted the call of Christ on your life, I want to give you this opportunity. So quickly, with every head bowed and every eyes closed, if God's calling you right now, if you haven't accepted that Jesus Christ died to accept you wherever you are right now, this is an opportunity to slip your hand into the air and to agree that with God I live and that with God I have more. And to turn away from the ways that you've separated yourself from God and to accept that despite that, he's calling to you. And all he's asking is for you to say, accept. If that's your story right now, if it's from God, go ahead and slip your hand into the air. Amen. And praise God. I encourage you as we close out to, from the very depths of your soul to worship as our worship team leads us. Thank you to you all. God bless you.